0: Elder Richard G. Hinckley was called to serve as a member of the First Quorum of Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in April 2005. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from the University of Utah in 1966. He then received an MBA degree from Stanford University in 1968. Elder Hinckley's professional career includes included management consultants at the firm of Deloitte and Touche in Los Angeles, California, and an equity partner in several small businesses. His community service includes being chairman of the board of Salt Lake Chapter of the American Red Cross. His many years of service in the church include being a full-time missionary in central Germany, being a bishop, state president, sealer in the Salt Lake Temple, and president of the Utah-Salt Lake City Mission from 2001 to 2004. Elder and Sister Hinckley are the parents of four children and the grandparents of ten. And now we'll have the opportunity to hear from Elder Hinckley.
1: Thank you, President and I'm glad you did not mention that among some of the things I do includes being a director of the University of Utah Alumni Association, <laughs> but now you know. I'm delighted to be with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And as you've heard, uh, President Samuelson is traveling today. He is a great leader, a devoted Latter-day Saint, and a dear friend and colleague in the 70s. He and I were undergraduates together at the University of Utah. I can assure you that it crossed neither of our minds in those days that he would be president of this institution and I would be speaking to you here. How interesting and unpredictable is the course of life. I'm sorry he's not here because I had hoped to borrow a blue tie from him. (laughs) I contemplated buying one, but did not know if I would have occasion to ever wear it again. In discussing this assignment with a trusted friend in the 70s some time ago, he suggested speaking to the topic of prophetic or prophetic priorities. That thought resonated with me, and I have chosen it as my topic today. This has been the subject subject of general authority training now for some time, as we try to focus on what the current prophet is teaching and the direction in which he is leading. I am grateful for his suggestion as it has given me the opportunity to think and to study this theme even more carefully. The citations I will use are those of our current prophet. Other prophets have also had much to say about these and other priorities, and I commend their teachings to you as well. There is an interesting line in the movie Anna and the King. As our current prophet approaches the end of a long and productive life, think of these words in the context of that life and the impact he has had on the Church and on the world. Quote, It is always surprising how small a part of life is taken up by meaningful moments. Most of them are over before they start. Although they cast their light on the future, and make the person who originated them unforgettable, end quote. Of course, there will not be time this morning to discuss with you an exhaustive list of these prophetic priorities. In preparing for this talk, I counted well over 30 from his recent speeches and writings. Rather, I will limit the number to six, and I will not attempt to speak of them in any particular order of importance. They are, one... Temple work and the building of temples. Two, the payment of tithing. Three, the avoidance of unnecessary debt. Four, extending forgiveness to others. Five, the family. And six, personal testimony. Before doing so, however, I would like to make an observation. As I have thought about this subject, it has occurred to me that all of our modern prophets have been optimists. That certainly is true of President Hinckley. Virtually every time he speaks, he leaves us with a sense that the future is bright and with a feeling of optimism, hope, and the desire to do a little better. He manages to do so even while warning of the dangers and pitfalls that beset us, and even while at times chastening us. Everything we do in the Church requires optimism. The building of temples is a sign of great optimism. The creation of new stakes and of new missions. The opening of new areas to missionary work. The building of hundreds of meeting houses every year. Year after year, the tremendous humanitarian effort we carry forth. The continued support of this great institution of education. All are signs of great optimism. And so what is the role of a prophet? It is to warn the people. It is to preach and teach and testify of the Savior. It is to proclaim the restored gospel to the world. And, yes, it is to continue to lead, build, promote, and encourage personal growth among all of God's children and to establish the Church in all the world in an optimistic way in spite of and in the face of terrorists, doomsayers, economic ups and downs, wars, and rumors of wars. I love the optimism in what is said to be an inscription on an old Yorkshire church tablet. I quote, In the year 1652, when through England all things sacred were either profaned or neglected, this church was built by Sir Robert Shirley, whose special praise it is to have done the best of things in the worst of times and to have hoped them in the most calamitous, quote. Excuse me. So it is, I have found, with modern-day prophets. They teach, they cajole, they encourage, they warn, they build. They move forward boldly in the best of ways, even in the worst of times. And they continue to look forward with faith, even in the most calamitous. First, it's a warm day. Temple work and the building of temples. President Hinckley said, quote, These unique and wonderful buildings and the ordinances administered therein represent the ultimate in our worship. These ordinances become the most profound expressions of our theology. I urge our people everywhere, with all of the persuasiveness of which I am capable, to live worthy to hold a temple recommend, to secure one and regard it as a precious asset, and to make a greater effort— to go to the house of the Lord and partake of the Spirit and the blessings to be had therein. I am satisfied that every man or woman who goes to the temple in a spirit of sincerity and faith leaves the house of the Lord a better man or woman. Quote. We now have 124 operating temples and several others announced. This is nearly three times the number operating in 1995 when our current prophet became president. I responded to, to, uh, to a very rare invitation by my father to accompany him on a journey through Africa in 1998. I was not a general authority at the time. In Ghana, after examining a proposed temple site in Accra and approving of its purchase, he announced to the 6,000 members gathered in an outdoor meeting that a temple would be built in their land. The response was instant and unexpected. They stood and embraced their neighbors. Many wept and pointed to the ground as if to say, we will have a temple right here in our homeland. We had been told the day before of a couple who recently had walked 25 kilometers in order to renew their temple recommends with no hope, ever, of seeing a temple. I will never forget my father's response, he said. We are here to give them hope. I will always remember that experience. That temple was dedicated in January of 2004. I plead with you to be worthy to hold a temple recommend at the time in your lives when it is appropriate. And to never let it lapse, and to use it frequently, you will be blessed as a result. How grateful I am for the blessing of temples. Second, the payment of tithing. Said our prophet, quote, I am profoundly grateful for the law of tithing. To me it is a constantly recurring miracle. It is made possible by the faith of the people. It is the Lord's plan for financing the work of his kingdom. It is so simple and straightforward, he continued. It consists of 35 words set forth in section 119 of the Doctrine and Covenants. What a contrast with the cumbersome, complex, and difficult tax codes with which we live as citizens. There is no compulsion to pay tithing. Other than the commandment of the Lord, and that, of course, becomes the best of all reasons. End quote. I have a deep testimony of the law of tithing. It has blessed my life. Through observance of this law, my faith has increased. My empathy for those in need has deepened. My appreciation for the Lord's blessings has grown. My testimony, is stronger as a result of my observance of this law. I am at a loss, my dear friends, to give expression to my gratitude for the blessings that I attribute to adherence to the law of tithing. Don't wait until you think you can afford to pay your tithing. There is never a time when you can afford not to pay it. Third, avoid unnecessary debt. President Hinckley said, quote, We have been counseled again and again concerning self-reliance, concerning debt, concerning thrift. So many of our people are heavily in debt for things that are not entirely necessary. When I was a young man, he continued, My father counseled me to build a modest home sufficient for the needs of my family and to make it beautiful and attractive, and pleasant and secure. He counseled me to pay off the mortgage as quickly as I could so that, come what may, there would be a roof over the heads of my wife and children. I was reared on that kind of doctrine. I urge you as members of this church to get free of debt where possible and to have a little laid aside against a rainy day." End quote. When I was 12, my father took me along to look at a new car. Nothing is more exciting for a boy than to shop for a new car with his father. Our car was old and well-worn. On the outdoor lot of a car dealer was a brand-new 1953 Plymouth. It was just the ticket, my father thought, a four-door sedan at a reasonable price. After some rather intense negotiating, my father said, Would you take $1,600 cash? I was stunned. I didn't think anyone in the world had that much money, (laughs) let alone my father. The offer was accepted, and that car served us well until I returned from my mission over nine years later. I learned to drive in that car when I turned 16. A few years ago, my father reminisced about that car over lunch. That Plymouth was a great car, he said. I reminded him that one of my friend's fathers bought two cars in 1957, just four years after we had acquired the 53 Plymouth. One was a Plymouth Fury, the other a Studebaker Golden Hawk. You're too young to remember those speedsters. Both had big V8 engines and were built to be fast. My friends and I took measure of a car in those days by just how fast it would go over Parley Summit, a long climb to to a high point on the four-lane highway east of Salt Lake City. Both of my friends' cars could do 100 miles an hour over that summit, I said, making sure my father understood that my friend had reported that to me and that I was not present to witness it. Curiosity finally got the best of him. What about the old Plymouth, he said. Thirty-seven, I reported, in second gear. Still, it was a wonderful car, he said. It was a flathead six, I complained. It had no radio, no air conditioning, no power windows, no power brakes. No power steering, no power seats, no power. (laughs) It never broke, he said. It couldn't, I said. It had no moving parts. (laughs) You didn't suffer a bit, he said, and it was paid for. He had me. I hadn't suffered, and I knew it was paid for because I had been with him when he bought it and had watched him, to my great astonishment, write out a check for $1,684, including taxes and licenses. Be careful with your finances, my dear young friends. You don't need the finest car or truck, the latest iPod, a big flat-screen television, or the latest laptop to be productive and happy. You will be happy when you can comfortably meet your obligations— and put a roof over your head and feed your families. Fourth, learn to forgive. Said President Hinckley, quote, I think forgiveness may be the greatest virtue on earth and certainly the most needed. There is so much of meanness and abuse, of intolerance and hatred. There is so great a need for repentance and forgiveness. It is the great principle emphasized in all of Scripture, both ancient and modern. There are so many in our day, he continued, who are unwilling to forgive and forget. Children cry and wives weep because fathers and husbands continue to bring up little shortcomings that are really of no importance. And there are also many women who would make a mountain out of every little offending molehill of word or deed. Somehow... Forgiveness, with love and tolerance, accomplishes miracles that, it, that can happen in no other way. He continues further. The great atonement was the supreme act of forgiveness. The magnitude of that atonement is beyond our ability to completely understand. I know only that it happened and that it was for you and for me. The suffering was so great, the agony so intense that none of us can comprehend it when the Savior himself offered himself as a ransom for the sins of all mankind, End quote. A number of years ago, I read a little book, first published in 1953. It is called Too Late the Fowler Ope, and was written by Alan Payton, the author of Cry the Beloved Country. As with the latter book, it is set in South Africa. It relates the story of a young husband and father of Afrikaans' descent who commits a terrible indiscretion. He humiliates himself, disgraces his community, and brings terrible shame to his family. He serves time in prison. His aunt longs for his family and others to forgive him and to begin the process of healing from their deep and mortifying wounds. The book contains some poignant passages regarding forgiveness. I quote one and paraphrase the other. There is a hard law that when a deep injury is done to us, we never recover until we forgive. And would that men could have turned to the holy task of pardon, that the body of the Lord might not be wounded twice and virtue come of our offenses. I pray that you will cultivate the the ability, the gift to forgive, to let go, to put offense behind you. It may be difficult, but it is necessary. The Lord himself commanded us to forgive 70 times 7. And further he said, For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord. For there remaineth in him the greater sin. End quote. If there exists fracture within your family or with a friend, pray, work, mend, and seek the faith and strength to forgive. Joy, peace, and happiness will be your reward. Fifth Family. In 1995, as you know, the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles issued the Family a proclamation to the world. It is bold and unequivocal. I quote, With so much of sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn and forewarn. In furtherance of this, we of the First Presidency and of the Council of the Twelve Apostles now issue a proclamation to the Church and to the world as a declaration and reaffirmation of standards, doctrines, and practices relative to the family which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this Church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. We commend to all a careful, thoughtful, and prayerful reading of this proclamation. The strength of any nation— is rooted within the walls of its homes. We urge our people everywhere to strengthen their families in conformity with these time-honored values, quote. There can be no mistake as to where the prophet of God stands regarding families. Many of you are married, many not yet. When I think of my own parents, father and mother, man and wife, I sometimes think of the words of Shakespeare found in Act two, scene one of King John. I quote He is the half part of a blessed man, left to be finished by such as she, and she a fair divided excellence, whose fullness of perfection lies in him. End quote. I like to think that Shakespeare borrowed that idea from Paul in his writings to the Corinthians when he said, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Now I know that marriage and family can be a sensitive subject on this campus. Those of you, particularly you men who are of sufficient age, have received a great deal of counsel on the subject of dating, courtship, and marriage. Fortunately for you, I do not have time to add to that counsel (laughs) except to endorse it and to encourage you. I had an experience in connection with the passing of my mother two years ago that affirmed in my heart the grand and magnificent principle of the eternal nature of marriage and of families. It left a deep and lasting impression on my soul, sweet and tender and powerful for which I will ever be grateful to a loving Father in heaven. Sixth and finally, personal testimony. President Hinckley has repeatedly counseled and urged each of us to work to obtain our own testimony and to live by it. I quote his words, "...the marvelous and wonderful thing is that any individual who desires to know the truth may receive that conviction." It will take study of the word of God. It will take prayer and anxious seeking of the source of all truth. It will take living the gospel and experiment, if you will, in following the teachings. I do not hesitate to promise because I know from personal experience that out of all this will come by the power of the Holy Ghost a conviction, a testimony, a certain knowledge, quote. I will repeat the Essence of what I told the students at Rick's College in a talk I gave there over six years ago. Some of you struggle with certain doctrines or practices of the church, past or present. They just don't quite seem to fit for you. I say, so what? That's okay. You're young. Be patient, but be persistent. Keep studying them. Keep thinking about them. Keep praying about them. Everyone has questions. I suppose even the prophets themselves had and have some questions. But don't throw away the jewels you do have in the meantime. Hold on to them. Build on them. Did you know, for example, that the two greatest intellectual achievements of the last century, the general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics, are in some points in conflict with each other? They cannot both be right in every detail. These are not my words, but the words of Stephen Hawking, the great British physicist. Yet, scientists rely on both of these theories every day to advance scientific knowledge, knowing that someday the differences will be understood, reconciled, and corrected. So it is with the gospel and our testimonies, yours and mine. This is not to suggest that the gospel is imperfect, but our understanding of it sometimes is. Like the scientist who uses relativity and quantum mechanics, we do not discard the gospel or our testimony because not every piece fits today. Years ago, a church leader used the following metaphor. Have you ever watched a stonemason build a rock wall, he said? He will sometimes pick up a rock that just does not fit anywhere in the niches of the wall. But does he abandon the wall and walk away? No. He simply sets the rock aside and keeps building until a niche appears and then proceeds until his wall is finished. So perhaps should we temporarily set aside questions that we continue to struggle with and that we cannot quite seem to answer today. Having faith that at some time in the future, a niche will appear in the rock wall of our testimony where they fit perfectly. Don't abandon the rock wall of your testimony because one or two rocks don't seem to fit. That has been my personal experience. Temples and temple work, tithing, avoiding unnecessary debt, forgiving, family, personal testimony, These are but a few of the priorities of our current prophet. I encourage you to pay close attention to them and to incorporate them into your lives so as to experience the blessings that will flow from from adherence to them. These are difficult and trying times. It would be easy to become discouraged as we look to the future. But remember the optimism of our prophet, which is real and palpable, and, as was the case with Sir Robert Shirley, whose special praise it is to do the best of things in the worst of times and to hope them in the most calamitous. I bear testimony, my dear brothers and sisters, of the truthfulness of these things. I bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, who lives and who leads this church with a sure and divine hand. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.